Hi there, welcome to the podcast. This is Jeff Till with 500years.org podcast. Today is October 17th, 2016. Today, we are going to talk about libertarianism as a political failure. This podcast isn't inherently libertarian, but it is done by a libertarian, me. So at some point, we were going to have to talk about this. Now, I'm not going to go through an entire exhaustive theory of liberty and libertarianism. Many of those are already available. A fine one is For a New Liberty by Murray Rothbard. Uh, the first hundred or so podcasts of Free Domain Radio, or even the first half dozen of School Sucks Project, all have great accounts. And so there's no need to, to rehash. What I am going to do, though, is find my own little corners of libertarianism that, I, libertarianism that I don't think have been covered and try to see if I can add some new color to the overall theory. So I think most here probably know what libertarianism is, but just in case there are new listeners, perhaps sometime in the future, after the government robots have hunted us all down, that you may not be totally familiar with the concept. It's basically a political theory uh, based on the non-aggression principle, which says you shouldn't hurt people and you shouldn't take their stuff. It's sort of kindergarten ethics that are applied to everybody, and it presumes that there's no separate set of of rules or ethics that people can apply to themselves, such as being in the government, that normal people don't have themselves. And if you apply that consistently, you'll see that you cannot, from a moral perspective, use force against people to do common things like run libraries, offer protection, help the poor, or build bridges, etc. That every function under the government becomes illegitimate because it is based on bad ethics of hurting people and taking their stuff via the monopoly of force of government and taxation, which is taking people's money against their will under a threat of violence. From a consequential point of view, uh, libertarians have seen that, that governments with its incentives, which are to, since it, it grows and, and it, it thrives by taking money, that there's no way that the incentive scheme can ever produce very good outcomes. And so throughout wherever you've looked at uh, regulation to the military, to the prison system, to the monetary system, to its love of debt, that is performed poorly. And then also we could look at it from a historical, from a, a precedent standpoint and see through its six to 10,000 year history is that it's really just done a great job of murdering people. Now, the, major the vast majority of people who have thought about political theory for more than five minutes, uh, most of them think libertarianism is absolutely awful. When I found it, I thought it was the best thing ever. I thought, here's something that makes sense, and, and brought it to my friends, and they, they promptly pooped on it. Most people view it as either a plea to be selfish or to not participate or to even freeload, whereas the, the burden of perhaps taking care of the poor or building a bridge is something that we all chip in together, and that the small minority of people who are too selfish to want to put their money in, see, um, you know, see government as an objection that way. And maybe there are some people who, who like that. That, of course, doesn't bring in the moral argument against government, the consequential argument against government, or the precedent, the historical precedent against government. 
but it's still viewed that way. And that's sort of the immediate reaction. We can see where these thoughts may have been born as most people have spent, you know, 15,000 hours of their childhood with the government so that these ideas are, are very acidic. They're, uh, they're very divisive to most people. So the two questions that I'd like to answer real quick is one is, are we selfish? Is the political philosophy selfish? And two, are libertarians trying just to help themselves or are they trying to help everybody? And I think the test you could put this to is if you gave the individual libertarians the choice of would you like your system, not your system, it's really not a system, it's actually just a, a uh, an, an environment of voluntary exchange, would you like that applied to everybody? Or if we could, we could still have everyone else pay their taxes and follow the rules, but we'll just give you an exemption. Would you prefer that? And so I think in, in both cases of whether it's being selfish or whether we're trying to help everybody or just ourselves, that we are insisting that it's something for everybody and would not just claim the exception. Now, if I was given an exception, if the government came up and said, uh, I'm going to have you stop paying taxes and you're not going to have to follow all these laws, I would certainly take that. But that's not what I'm going to hang my philosophy hat on. So I'm sorry. I'm sort of screaming through the super summary version of the Case for Liberty. And as I said before, there's other great accounts that you can spend hours and hours upon. But I'm really just trying to get through uh, some of the really super basics so I can get on to some of the little nuancey stuff that I found interesting and that might be new. Uh, but first, I have heard this come up multiple times, which is John Rawls' uh, theory of justice, which is often used as sort of the case-closed argument for embracing a progressive uh, lefty social justice point of view. And so I'm probably going to butcher the meaning of this and do a horrible job, but that has not stopped me before. And plus I get to read off Wikipedia, which is a super fun thing to do, as I've discussed earlier. So in a theory of justice, Rawls argues for a principled reconciliation of liberty and equality that's meant to apply to the basic structure of a well-ordered society. Central to this effort is an account of the circumstance of justice inspired by David Hume and a fair choice situation for parties facing such circumstances similar to some of Immanuel Kant's views. Principles of justice are sought to guide the conduct of the parties. These parties are recognized to face moderate scarcity, and they are neither naturally altruistic nor purely egoistic. They have ends which they seek to advance, but prefer to advance them through cooperation with others on mutually acceptable terms. Rawls offers a model of fair choice situation, which is the original position with its veil of ignorance, and that's probably a key point of this whole argument, with, within which parties would hypothetically choose mutually acceptable principles of justice. Under such constraints, Rawls believes that parties would find his favored principles of justice to be especially attractive, winning out over varied alternatives, including, and I think this means especially, to put words in this author's mouth, utilitarian and right libertarian accounts. And just so it's known, the right libertarian goes to a link to something that is 
the exact uh, description of anarcho-capitalism, which is the the probably the very specific brand of libertarianism that I assign to. So here's the original position. Rawls belongs to the social contract tradition, although he takes a different view from that of previous thinkers. Specifically, Rawls develops what he claims are principles of justice through the use of an artificial device he calls the original position, in which everyone decides principles of justice from behind a veil of ignorance. This veil is one that essentially blinds people to all facts about themselves so they cannot tailor principles to their own advantage. Quoting Rawls, no one knows his place in society, his class position, or social status, nor does anyone know his fortune in the distribution of natural assets and abilities, his intelligence, strength, and the like. I shall even assume that the parties do not know their conceptions of the good or their special psychological propensities. The principles of justice are chosen behind this veil of ignorance. Actually changed A to this. The principles of justice are chosen behind a veil of ignorance. So, according to Rawls, ignorance of these details about oneself will lead to principles that are fair to all. That doesn't sound bad. If an individual does not know how he will end up in his own conceived society, he is likely not going to privilege any one class of people, but rather develop a scheme of justice that treats all fairly. In particular, Rawls claims that those in the original position would all adopt a maximum strategy which would maximize the prospects of the least well-off. To further quote Rawls, they are the principles that rational and free persons concerned to further their own interest would accept an initial position of equality as defining the fundamentals of the terms of their association. So to put this in my own terms, you have to imagine yourself uh, being an unborn baby with intelligence before the start comes to do this hypothetical exercise. And you have to decide what kind of system you'd like to, a system of justice you'd like to arrive in after you were born, not knowing if you're going to be stupid or poor or handicapped or rich or successful or have a criminal mind, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually think it's a great exercise to do. And I can also see how it would be easy to come to conclusions like if you are, if, if there are people or it's even, especially if it's you who are poor and disadvantaged and the wrong race and the wrong gender or whatever, that a guarantee of base, some basic income or welfare or a survival the stipend to be able to eat where free medicine and free education uh, would be nice to be provided. Now, what the analysis seems to skip, in my opinion, and why it doesn't actually change my mind from libertarianism, is that it doesn't seem to mention that a government with a limited amount of people lording over everyone would have to enforce this, how they would have to pay for it through taxation, and they would have to enforce its implementation through a system of violence. So that part is is missing. They also miss the incentives that would come with this. And then they also seem to miss the big historical precedent that government-run sort of systems of egalitarianism tend to not produce very much wealth. So if we were to like look at any point in time when government was worse, or if we were to look at examples where this egalitarianism was, was, was sought after, 
such as in communist Cuba or Russia or China or Venezuela just recently, we would see that the people there are much worse off. So, and the countries that are freer tend to have a lot more money. So where the poor person, this poor, let's say this poor disadvantaged, dumb black woman in the socialist construct is going to be a lot more poor than that same person born into the free market capitalist, uh, more free area. So one person's going to be stuck manufacturing tennis shoes in a sweatshop. The other person's probably going to have an iPhone and will probably be obese, but will be well-fed and well-entertained. So doing Rawls exercise, I would still pick a free society. Now, the other thing that I think is missed is that the the exercise when you when you come up with the the progressive more state-like solution presumes that things like starvation and medicine provision are somehow only enabled through the government and this of course isn't true it also suggests that being able to help people is also only a function of the government and we know this isn't true because people have friends and families and communities and charities and other ways to help people. So I still think if I were under that veil of ignorance, I would still pick my, my dream science fiction libertarian society over one that enforced these modes of justice through government force. I think it's a lot more fun to be a libertarian than be anything else. There's a very interesting and joyous discovery process that happens, and most of it is very difficult, largely because it's contrarian to just about everything that your parents ever thought of that you were ever taught in school or college. In fact, they would admonish it or uh, completely dismiss libertarianism or the philosophy of liberty in school because it runs against every one of their motivations and best interests. It's also against everything that you get in the media. It's taught nowhere, and it is always poorly represented in national elections or any part of the political process whatsoever. A lot of times people talk about whether you take the red pill or the blue pill using the matrix example of either embracing the truth or rejecting the truth and staying within the matrix, within your, your servitude, within your slavery. And I don't think it's like that at all. I think it's more like being buried alive with a spoon or without a spoon. It's a huge, monumental struggle of self-education, de-schooling, unlearning, and relearning. On top of it, you also have to learn a lot about economics. And I don't think there's other political philosophies that spend quite as much time talking about how commerce and money work. And this can be fascinating. So I'm just going to actually stand up. I have these four posters in my office where I'm sitting. And I got these posters from the Mises Institute. I had a choice when I moved into my office just about three years ago whether I was going to get Tom Brady and Patriot artwork, use original artwork, or find something cool like this, which would sort of be businessy and inspiring to intellectual pursuits. So the Mises Institute offers these four posters, one that says Reed Hayek, one that says 
says read Muses, one that says read Hazlitt, one that says read Rothbard, and they have pictures of the handsome gentleman on there. And they also list all of their books. And what's kind of cool is I don't think that to be a card-carrying Republican or Democrat or socialist is that besides maybe that John Rawls book we just discussed, there's a ton of other stuff that's really going to shake up your foundational beliefs. There's probably not a lot that's going to re-educate you on how economics works or what the proper role of violence is within a society. You're mostly probably going to get what I'm going to guess is cheerleading for a sort of arbitrary and randomish seeming menu of issues and pre-made solutions that the government can offer. So whereas in that that those circles, the political theory is mostly based around what can we use this power apparatus to sort of shove down onto everyone? How can we use a system of authority to get things done? The libertarians still have to describe how the world works when people are acting peacefully and voluntarily without central control. And that for anyone who's trying to just make up solutions and get things done seems like a very daunting task or an impossible task. But the truth is, is that most of our lives are lived that way anyways, and just in terms of how you pick a girlfriend or how you pick out what you're going to eat in the, you know, today or what clothes you're going to wear or what house you're going to live in, or even how to collaborate with your employers and your employees and your coworkers and how you interact with customers, etc., is all managed and run by these decentralized, non-authority type relationships. So I'm just going to stand up and sort of walk around my office a bit. Hopefully you can still hear me. This is actually kind of fun to do. And just, you know, so some of the titles of these books are, aren't going to be like The Audacity of Hope uh, or, you know, something that's very emotive. They're going to be like The Case for the 100% Gold Dollar, Man, Economy, and State, The Origins of the Federal Reserve, Eagle Terrorism, and As a Revolt Against Nature, Power and Market, Economic Thought Before Adam Smith, we have economics in one lesson, the way to willpower, the failure of new economics, the conquest of poverty. We have human action, money method, and the market process. Omnipotent government, the rise of the total state and total war. The ultimate foundation of economic science. Now see, aren't these just like completely badass sounding books and I've, I've read barely any of them. I have read probably 20 or 30 books on these topics and and sort of liberty and economics in general, but there's so much more. And all of these can be actually pretty, sometimes pretty tough, pretty detailed, uh, but still like a ton of fun to really get into. Uh, the Sensory Order, an Inquiry into the Foundations of Theoretical Psychology, Denationalization of Money, the pure theory of capital, the road to serfdom. So anyway, that's one of the, the great fun things is, is finding these contrarian ideas and then having them resonate to where you realize that these things that have brought you through your education early in life were all sort of just memorized things that were sort of force fed in school and by your folks and by the media. And there's this whole 
wonderful world of truth out there. Now, I had the bad luck of becoming a libertarian before there was the internet in any real significant way. And I didn't even know what it was, even all through college, but I did know that I didn't like the socialist lefty ideas of such like free college and free medicine. That didn't make sense to me. And I also knew that I understood how work works, like going to work and then getting money in exchange for it. And I appreciated that. And then I also had a fondness for businesses where a lot of people in college would bemoan, you know, big, big brands and big corporate stuff. And I was always of their mind that, hey, you know, actually, I like going to Taco Bell and I like playing video games and seeing movies. So I had this sort of good relationship with commerce, which I think is almost totally necessary to have to embrace libertarianism is to really sort of have this love and appreciation of of how commerce works and how money can be created, how value can be created, and then how consumption and and enjoying that can also can also work. And if you don't have a good relationship with commerce, you'll be probably perpetually confused and look for intermediary intermediaries or authorities to sort of intervene on your behalf sort of like your parents do when you're very small and you don't understand how to obtain money or how to work or how to necessarily interact with commerce you just sort of assume that your parents are going to either hand you something or dictate that your brother or sister gives you something or that they will go buy it for you etc so I almost want to thank that someone who very much appreciates the state is also doesn't always have maybe the best relationship with commerce. They're looking for an intermediary intermediary. I got that word wrong twice. Um, an intermediary or an authority to dole out things uh, and make the decisions on their behalf and on the behalf of other people. I didn't really get into the whole spectrum. I started with uh, Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged and Reason Magazine, which is sort of somewhat aligned with the Cato Institute group of libertarians back in the year 2000. Uh, I immediately brought it to my friends and they, they barfed all over it. And it wasn't until the Ron Paul campaign that the internet sort of all opened up and all the other groups, the sort of the, the Mises and Rothbard camps and the paleoconservative types and all these other sort of strings of libertarianism came up and it was sort of like a large sort of crossbreeding uh, exercise of ideas as well as being very excited to see a guy on TV who had these ideas and was actually being given time at a microphone on the television to talk and one of the neat things about Ron Paul is that he always had sort of three perspectives for any issue that was brought up in a debate he would always have the theoretical ideal one of what a free society would do. He had the one that was in the context of if the current government was actually restrained by the limits of the Constitution as originally supposedly planned, and then a third one which was very incremental. So, for example, and I'm just making this up, this isn't necessarily one of his true answers. I probably could get one on YouTube. If, you know, asked about health care, the first would be the in a free society answer, or the anarchistic answer of that, well, 
people would have major medical insurance and healthcare would be very cheap without its regulation and all the, the agencies and, and sort of fascistic elements that are around it. Uh, and then the constitutional answer, if, if they were discussing Obamacare or something, would be the Constitution does not uh, give this authority to the Congress or the government to provide these services, and therefore it must be either delegated to the state or the individual. And then the very incremental one would be some ticky-tacky policy stuff like perhaps we should remove the incentives uh, to make sure health care is covered under employment, etc. So it was very neat to get that whole education across the spectrum. And I think it confused a lot of people, too, because as a lot of people became more pure in their liberty thought, the constitutional stuff and the policy stuff started to pale and get confused with the pure anarchy stuff. And at the same time, Dr. Paul was encouraging everyone to go read Marie Rothbard and Mises and study economics. And what happened is a lot of people did. Uh, the campaign, if you don't know, from 2008 and 2012 was a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of chatter online, a lot of live events, uh, but ultimately unsuccessful. And there was a lot of analysis done afterwards that it was really sort of a waste of money and time and that it didn't even make sense to no matter how pure of a thinker or qualified or pure of a soul this libertarian was that it didn't make sense to try to grab the the authority to try you know grab the ring of power and put it you know you have that wise master put it into place and that that realization for a lot of people sort of soured people on Ron Paul afterwards, even though his thinking was very consistent when you put into context that he would give you the, the, the right answer, the constitutional answer, and then the incremental answer. So the other sour realization is that is that elections and individuals, saviors, you know, messianic people will probably never work in achieving liberty that we're probably looking at a 100 to 200 year project and it won't come from politicians. Politicians are lagging indicators of what happens in the world. They follow what people do. And it's hypocritical to say that we shouldn't, you know, condense all this power and authority into the judgment of a few people and say, you know, if you just give us that power, you know, we'll, we'll use it for good. Um, the, the right answer is to eliminate the power, eliminate that authority, eliminate the violence, not try to take it over. So as an analogy, if you were hiring someone to run the Girl Scouts, you would not want to find someone who hates cookies and little girls and put them in charge. And that's sort of similar to trying to elect libertarian politicians in my, my book is, you know, you're, you can't actually you know, embrace somebody who's going to be counter to the institution. And what's empowering in this is that it completely frees the libertarian from having to deal with politics or to feel beholden to the electoral system as somehow being a duty or a responsibility or even an opportunity to do anything at all, because it really isn't. And once you get out of that, you can then look at your your Democrat and Republican friends and unfortunately see that they're fairly powerless too in their efforts to change things. 
because all they are doing is voting for their own saviors. Now, they have the advantage that the solutions that they're hoping these people do actually embrace and uh, totally utilize the absolute power of the state. But still, as individuals, they are equally powerless as the libertarians in getting really anything done. All of this is also why no libertarians should probably get too excited about the Gary Johnson, Bill Weld campaign. Besides, you know, being unwinnable and undesirable to win, uh, these guys really don't have that triple explanation thing that that Dr. Paul had. They don't they don't have the education to give us a a real libertarian story, even if they were just using the the television media and the online stuff to reach out to people. They basically are presenting, as far as I can tell, a sort of arbitrary bag of things that they would like to do, and that doesn't really differ much from a Republican or Democratic platform, where it's sort of a memorized list of preferences about what you'd like government to do, but no underlying principle on what those should be. And that's sort of one thing I really like about libertarianism is that once you understand the core tenets of the philosophy and economics um, and the principles like the non-aggression principle is that you don't actually have to have a memorized position in mind to know what the libertarian position is. You know, so the, the question to the answer, you know, what should government's role in this be, you know, X, even if you didn't know what the the you know the most agreed upon thing you could just use the philosophy and arrive to it and other ones whether it's you know socialism or the democrats or the conservatives etc i don't i don't think that's true you sort of have to memorize the the platform and everything you know everything it represents so uh if you know you were to say who were to promote limiting soda sizes uh, you, you know, you, you'd be like, well, I, you know, I'm not really sure. Is that a Democrat thing or is that a Republican thing? Uh, you know, supposedly rep- Republicans have this message of individual freedom. But if you, you know, ask about marijuana usage, oh, no, you know, you can't do that. Uh, you know, completely contradictory to what they say. There's this message of limited spending or fiscal responsibility. But when it comes to spending, you know, one and a half trillion dollars blowing up poor people overseas, then, you know, money's not an issue whatsoever. So it's just wholly inconsistent. And so I think, it, unfortunately, for better or worse, everyone already has the, you know, the platform sort of memorized. So it's been about two weeks since I've recorded since you heard that last drum beat go. And I had this idea that I thought I already recorded, but I can't seem to find it in this podcast. So I apologize if it ends up being a repeat. But I had this idea that people have to have a good relationship with commerce in order to become libertarians. So unless you really understand how to produce value and also how to to make good spending decisions, as well as manage your money, uh, derive income, uh, manage relationships with others on a voluntary basis, that you're probably going to have a hard time with libertarianism. At the same time, I began thinking about this, and while it could very well be a prerequisite, it's not certainly a leading indicator or a predictor of an affinity towards libertarian ideas, because we know there's a lot of people, including people who are millionaires and billionaires, who have great relationships with commerce, but absolutely hate the shit. At the same time, we can see complete 
hopelessness in sort of political thought with people who really have a, a poor understanding of how commerce uh, is generated and how to interact with it. Uh, we could see this especially in the education system, and I'm right now I'm sort of speaking about academics and teachers, but you can see this in other areas, surely probably with government employees and other industries which really aren't totally linked in with the whole commerce experience. And now in some ways, this is actually a really big ask because the people who don't have a good relationship with commerce would be the first to say that a voluntary sort of collaborative society is the worst way to go since they don't really understand how that works. Now, this is probably a huge failure of public education where through the whole development time of that 15,000 hours, people are purposely kept out of interacting with commerce. In fact, are probably taught that in general, it's either something that is abstract, something that just their parents do, or something that they will only understand after they become not only an adult, but what's considered a successful adult. But that got me to think that maybe if we want to help people make this sort of intellectual transition to the light side over here of libertarianism, that maybe we don't start by electing officials or by teaching classical liberal teachings or having arguments or doing a consequentialist issue by issue demand of, of benefits and cons, but instead just to teach people and encourage people to have a nice relationship with economics and commerce. Just an idea. That might be an easier way to go. And it also might be not only less threatening and not seeming like we're going to change the whole world order, uh, but instead is is in itself a very practical and useful little piece of knowledge to have. That's actually what uh, separates pretty much anyone who is sort of meaning meaningfully functional in our society to people who are able to generate great value is that sort of either intuitive or very purposeful relationship with commerce. Just my two cents. So one of the other great parts about being a libertarian is that you eventually get to become an anarchist. And an anarchist, for one, sounds totally badass. You gotta admit it. It's the guy in the movie who wears the scary mask and throws the Molotov cocktail into the state building and kills all the bad guys. Uh, or he's, he's the, he is the bad guy, right? He's the one who's uh, threatening the whole world with you know, it, his violent takeover. But how we're using the term, of course, anarchist means that you're a wild advocate and radical for peace, for voluntary cooperation and nonviolence. So it's a dandy thing to be that way. Now, of course, it takes quite a while. It takes most people quite a while from the first time they pick up Atlas Shrugged and first have to go and yell at everyone about what uh, rational self-interest is to then slog through all the different steps of uh, you know, telling telling your mom and dad that you, we really need a gold standard, and then explaining to people why you know this class one of drugs should be legalized and why this class two probably should not, and then uh, struggling through whether uh, there is such thing as just war, uh, str str struggling through you know what issues you think are the best and uh, what things are a waste of money that the government might spend, but then eventually you get to go to this point where you realize. Uh, either because of, as we just, uh, discussed before, because of the 
the incentives that are in place, the historical argument, or the moral argument that the whole thing is illegitimate. And at that point, there's this huge moment of relaxation, both personally, where you don't have to worry about all the terrible things that the statist and the state apparatus is doing, because you realize that there's nothing you can do to advocate within it that's going to make a difference. And then, you know, your parents and your friends and everything can also just stop arguing arguing with you because they know that you've fully accepted that there isn't this compromise that needs to happen. And at the same time that you're not going to try to do anything about it. And so you're sort of off the political map at that time. Now, the, the part of the scary part about actually calling yourself an anarchist, which, by the way, is very easy to do. There's, you know, nothing that actually happens. But in the mind, I think of a lot of libertarians who are on the precipice of moving over to the anarchy side, you know, they always want to have to feel like one is that they have to have an absolute new solution for every problem in the world. And all of a sudden, you're like, well, you know, I don't know if uh, mutualized wastewater can really be achieved in a free market. I mean, we don't want a sewer pipe going to absolutely everyone's house owned by 10 different companies, or you get into really scary stuff like, you know, what happens if the Chinese all get in their battle cruisers and come over and attack us? Or what happens if the your neighbor is ritually raping their own children and there's no external agency to help out? And the truth is, is that you don't really have to figure out solutions to absolutely everything in the world. In fact, the people who run the government have not figured out solutions uh, to really almost any of those problems. Maybe they've got a good way in on that mutualized wastewater, but even they, uh, compared to how they hand- handle it now, don't necessarily always stop your neighbor from ritually raping his daughter. Uh, or perhaps they've done a good job of keeping the Chinese army at bay, but we really don't know what the alternative would be. And then the other thing, besides not having the answers to everyone, everything, everyone says, well, would you be willing to pull the switch? So if you had a magic, magic switch that could eliminate government overnight, you know, would you do it and then potentially see the peace and collaboration blossom from the ground up? Or would your worst fear happen and it would just be the absolute chaos and war of all against all mass murder thugs, gangs taking over the weak, the, the weakest of us, the children, the women, disabled, you know, being trampled under the feet of the most brutish among us. Now, of course, that that's scary. Will you pull the switch? Of course, it's not going to be a switch. It's going to be probably be generations and generations before this happens. And it's going to come from an intellectual uh, change of mind in a, in a way we change how children are raised and how we school people, or rather not school people. Uh, it won't come from having the government suddenly disappear. You couldn't really do that anyways. It's not like if you wanted to create atheism in the world that you could just, you know, have, you know, murder all the priests and burn all the church days and expect everyone's belief to change. Still, at the same time, you know, how dangerous is it to be a progressive or a conservative who has these ideas of how the future should be and don't seem to have the same hesitation to say, well, what happens if I just pull the switch? So anyone advocating, you know, the basic income guarantee or a health care for all or 
forgiving all student loan debt. No one ever says like, well, would you really pull the trigger? Would you really, you know, have Bernie pull the trigger and, and all of a sudden have all that, that debt relieved or, you know, give everyone $13,000 a year in free money, even though the consequences from this could probably be way more destructive than anything an anarchist could come up pulling their switch. But still, you know, in the framework of government, to pull the switch seems like no big deal, even in the most wild and, you know, crazy type of programs that can be imagined that would seriously affect people's lives. And we know this from historic precedent, because at one point, they did decide to take the, the money off the gold standard. They decided to set up a Federal Reserve. They decided to set up a standing army and then fund it like crazy. And then at one point we saw George Bush on TV in 2003 where he was counting down before he was going to say, we're going to start this war. And then all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden these really bad things happened. Uh, the war lasted for, you know, for 14 years and is ongoing and presumably over a million dead people because of it. The, um, the changing of the monetary system, you know, was the worst possible, almost the worst possible outcome, and that the dollar lost 98% of its value over that time. Uh, we're seeing this happen now with the the the, the making of the fascistic uh, healthcare system that came in two years ago. I just got a letter in the mail that not only are they canceling my plan and putting me in a new one, the second year in a row, it's the second year that the premiums have gone up uh, 30%. So that's a for me that's a three hundred dollar per month increase. When I first was researching moving to South Carolina, my family's insurance premiums were going to be about four hundred dollars a month, and now with the absolute bottom of the bottom, uh, what's it called bronze package? It's now going to be one thousand three hundred dollars, which, by the way, happens to be about the same amount of money that the BIG universal income people suggest giving to people every month. So that's enough to cover that uh, one month of health care. I, I know the, the, that, that, that sort of sci-fi vision, that liberal or progressive sci-fi vision involves not having health insurance, but a free health care system. Anyway, all of those things, and we don't even know like that. People have, governments around the world have pulled the switch, you know, hit, hit the, uh, the magic button that made health care single-payer or government paid for, and we don't even know what kind of innovations uh, or even life-prolonging pr technologies have been killed through that. So is it, you know, is when you, when you become an anarchist, is it dangerous to say, you know, are you willing to pull the switch? Well, keep in mind that the, the visionary leftists and the visionary rightists have that same danger in pulling their switch, but then the worst part is their switch actually gets hit sometimes. Now, going back to our hypothetical raped child or unmanageable, mutualized wastewater sewage infrastructure, or even our impending invading army, what's nice about using anarchistic arguments is that things quickly, when you're arguing with someone who, who doesn't agree with this political view, will very quickly go to things like that. You know, how, how, will, how will children be saved? How will you know, uh, immediately go to the police. Like, what happens if there's an intruder at your door? How will that, you know, be taken care of with, without a government? And things all of a sudden get really, really tied close to that, you know, that necessity, that perceived necessity of having uh, a, a monopolistic 
use of violence, you know, authorized by the state to do something. Because all of a sudden there, it gets actually pretty hard to understand how a raped little girl might get rescued without a government or how a burglar might be stopped at your, you know, in your driveway without a monopoly of force by some other authority. And that actually is where it gets really interesting. The wonderful part is when you bring it to those terms, you get to fight like some of the, or not fight, but you get to sort of analyze and discuss some of the really hard societal problems that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, uh, could might might need some kind of um, you know authority to take care of. I'm I'm not really sure. We we have ideas of how to handle it without, and and we have evidence of how they've been handled with a state in all of these cases. But what you also get away from is you don't have to necessarily have now a debate about whether you should use violence and authority to run a library or to fund art or to fund certain kinds of science or to set, you know, what a, you know, a, a, how, you know, how clean or how often a chicken is inspected. You know, all of these things all of a sudden seem very trivial in the, the face of violence. So it's, it actually is a very refreshing way to pull the whole discussion into the parts that are really hard and then realize that there's so many parts that the, the existing government is doing that really, you know, have no, you know, where violence really should have no role whatsoever. So now I compiled a list of things that I'm going to call libertarian guilt. And these are things that libertarians suggest that each other do. And this isn't going to make any sense to someone who is not a libertarian, I don't think. But these, this list of about 12, a dozen things, maybe 20, are things that all libertarians have to consider and decide whether they want to actively participate with or not. So beginning now is you have to vote for X. And this happens every election season. It sort of bifurcates the libertarian movement of whether it is your duty to show up, campaign for, donate to, and support a certain libertarian candidate. And I for one, have been a sucker to this this value proposition many times. And there's still, even infighting, uh, you know, in between libertarians of whether this is a valuable thing to say, let's get the libertarian presidential candidate, candidate over 1% of the vote, or should you not bother uh, because, you know, what's 1% anyways? Anyway, so I've, I have done that, and so I can check the box that I have voted for a libertarian candidate. Now, number two is you don't vote at all. And this is, of course, the newer position that I take, is that voting is futile, and at its worst, it may be even be immoral as you are accepting or you are supporting the, the win-lose, winner-take-all, uh, power grab for authority, grab the, the power ring approach of the government by even suggesting that you should say who should win. So now I'm going to check the box on this one and say I am now under the camp that you shouldn't vote at all if you are a genuine card-carrying libertarian. The next is sort of a test of what did you read, and an extension of this is what podcast do you listen to or what other media do you consume? Uh, Libertarians are very prolific in the amount of stuff that they produce and the depth of literature. So 
you're almost guilty if you don't have a nice, healthy stack of, I'd say, somewhere between 10 and 1,000 books in your libertarian library at home. And a lot of them, of course, have to be economics and political theory. And then I also think you should have a nice, healthy library of books on education and history as well. Uh, same goes for the podcast and YouTube consumption. That, of course, should be measured in thousands of hours of genuine angry libertarians talking about what you should do. So I'm going to check the box right there on three and four and say that I am under the tent. And so far, I am passing this test, even if the first ones about voting for X and not voting at all seem to contradict each other. The next one is, do you donate? So all libertarian causes, whether they're think tanks, podcasts, books, organizations, campaigns, whatever, are always miserably underfunded, and you really don't have your skin in the game, supposedly, unless you give some people some money that you earn, and you certainly don't think that they should go get grants or grovel to institutions to get their money, and if you really believe in value generation and commerce and that, you know, the, uh, the, the power sort of of your dollar, then you go and donate. So I'm going to check off the box here and say that I have donated frequently to several, mostly to podcasts at this point, but I do make a point if I really even listen to more than half a dozen episodes, I usually throw some shekels their way. Okay. Did you go to an event such as maybe a fee event a libertarian conference, pork fest, etc. And I think this is a dandy way to probably go and and show your stuff and probably a necessary thing on your libertarian checklist card that I'm describing right now. I haven't been to just about anything. So unfortunately, I don't have this cred on my resume. Next, do you own gold? Now, if you don't know, gold is the what has been for 6,000 years considered money. Uh, Ron Paul was got everyone in a frenzy about making sure you own gold. It is a hedge against government inflation. So as your dollar loses value through inflation and the Federal Reserve, your gold protects you. Plus, if all of a sudden shit gets really bad here in society and the Russians are coming in, or the even worse, the, the total state is coming and pounding on your door. You can uh, you know, dig out your gold from your backyard, and now you have usable currency, even if the state currency has crashed, and then you can you know, uh, buy your fake papers, buy that renegade airplane ride out of the country, and get the hell out of Dodge. So do I own gold? I do, but I don't own any physical gold. It wouldn't probably be smart to announce that on a podcast anyways. But within my savings accounts, I have uh, different gold vehicles, uh, some direct ownership. And I'm not even sure how much exposure because I'm in a managed account, but then also to gold producing assets like mining companies, etc. Okay, do you like the gold standard? So this is this is more old-timey Ron Paul stuff, of course, is the gold standard was a system of tying U.S. money or bank money even to to physical gold so that the, the dollars that you have were exchangeable into real gold coins in case you lost confidence in how well the, the, the money was being managed, etc. Uh, 
going off the gold standard into a fiat currency, meaning uh, money that is violence-backed or essentially just mandated by the state, allows the government to print endless amounts of money. So libertarians usually have some history advocating for a gold standard, uh, even though perhaps the better position would be private money or gold money or just commodity money altogether. So I have advocated for the gold standard in the past. I think at least as far as rite of passage, I get to mark that off in my book. And this is sort of uh, goes with it. You hate the Federal Reserve. So you have to at some point probably have some serious sort of uh, conspiracy level hate towards the Federal Reserve, which is a is sort of the semi-private organization that's sort of bosses around the government or is is bossed around by the government, but it's actually owned by the 13 largest financial institutions in the United States. And they, they are in charge of not coining the money, I think, but in managing the money supply and interest rates. And we can, it's popular to blame them for every economic cycle, all inflation, and basically every sort of financial woe that happens in the world that isn't an outright, you know, dot-com frenzy or uh, or otherwise. Um, yeah, I can check that one off. I got a couple books. I, I used to be able to call that on my things I hate list. It's not really a big, big, uh, panic of mine right now. Uh, you know, I'm a little worried, like, I, you know, I don't know how the stock market's going to behave. I don't know how quantitative easing is going to affect everything. I can't assume it's going to be good. Um, but I'm much more concerned with other things such as the education of children and uh, peaceful parenting and being nice to people and, you know, embracing collaboration and, you know, personal happiness, getting getting rid of obligations that you don't have, uh, being free on a day-to-day basis instead of worrying about these this gang of supervillains that I'll never meet. Uh, okay, next one, are you anti-war? Yes, of course. It's not nice to kill people. Um, I do have to say, probably 15 years ago, uh, I was kind of unsure. I I certainly thought there may have been times when it was necessary, or even if I had taken a historical perspective, which I didn't think about much, I'm sure I could have made up good excuses for things like World War II, or the participation in World War I, or even perhaps thinking that even though I didn't understand the Iraq War, uh, somebody in the government knew what they were doing. But that has all changed. War is essentially not something of the people. It is something almost solely made up by governments. And you can take any example you want going back to, you know, 1000 BCE, Persians and Babylonians and Assyrians, and find out that it was really their leaders that always did this to them. It was never common people with a bloodlust. Uh, next, do you do drugs? So libertarians advocate for drug freedom that you know shouldn't be. You should be able to allowed to, if you're not hurting anyone, uh, do whatever you want to your own. Uh, believe you should be able to pick what you put in your body, and that shouldn't uh, neither be illegal nor be taxed nor be otherwise controlled. That actually leads to the a connection between people. Who, who want to do drugs and then pick that position. So you think about the stoner uh, who wants to smoke pot, and he's going to find groups of people who advocate for pot, pot legalization. 
And so he might tie his wagon to the libertarians just for that issue. And that's sort of, I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the majority or even much of the, the movement, as you want to call it. It's more of just a stereotype that people outside tend to put on there. But there are some that find drugs a, a since it is a right that we should have, that maybe it's also something to, to consume personally. And yeah, I did them all. Um, do you like to argue like a big know-it-all douchebag about everything? So this is another trait that every libertarian should have on their list. And you probably, if you haven't had a past arguing with people like a big know-it-all douchebag, um, you, you probably didn't really go through part of your libertarian training. I'm sorry. And so anyway, I can check this off the list. I've many times argued like a big know-it-all douchebag. Uh, who knew everything in the whole world, and can even probably be convinced to do that sometimes. But I like to actually take a much more mellow approach and now only irritate my mother-in-law. Okay, this is a big one. Do you own a gun? And unfortunately, I fail this test miserably. I'm actually quite scared of guns, even if I'm standing behind a cop, like at the bank, and he's got his sidearm. I get sort of nervous and uneasy. I mean, I get uneasy around the uniform anyways. Uh, but I don't own a gun. I do have plans at some point to go get myself at least a, a rifle, uh, perhaps a pistol and a shotgun, which seems to be the, the three that you really need, you know, in case you got one, the shotgun to kill a zombie, the handgun to kill a burglar, and then the rifle to shoot the oncoming uh state soldiers from down the street. So I guess I will eventually have to probably get some training and then go out to wherever you go is I think it's seven 11 now and uh, here in South Carolina and pick up some guns. And I guess while I'm there, I, I could think about getting an AR 15 or some other kind of machine gun, which, you know, you need when you absolutely positively have to kill every motherfucker in the room. Uh, although I'm not sure that's a uh, whether that's more of a tea party type thing, uh, which is w what we'd see on TV, than a uh, a nice s sort of uh, <laughs> uh, Ayn Rand Rothbardian uh, peace and love uh, anarchist. Although in the spirit of killing government operatives, I guess you would at least need that plus an entire arsenal beyond. So I'll think about picking one of those up too. Okay, next is. Do you stockpile or prep? And this is for anything from uh, getting ready for when the dollar collapses because of our, our corrupt banking system to a black sky event to presumably in, an invasion by a foreign power or, or even the, the turning of the state against its own people where all of a sudden your money's not going to work and you're not going to be able to go to the grocery store and your water's going to be turned off. And you're going to have to survive for any time between, you know, three weeks to six months or longer. And so what you do is you keep a bunch of fresh water, maybe some MREs. I believe that's the right acronym. Um, some, you know, tons of tuna fish and other canned goods and whatnot to be sure that you can survive uh, through an extended period without modern infrastructure. And sadly, I don't do this yet. I think it's a great idea, not just for libertarians, but for probably everybody to some degree, uh, especially given we just had Hurricane Matthew here 
and there was a bunch of fear that we would lose water infrastructure for for a while and not have power. And I, I have been without power up north when it's been freezing weather, you know, and not have power for seven days at a time, and your, your food does go bad, and then your water stops working. So I can certainly see the imperative for this, and it wouldn't take very much investment. Uh, I believe, I, I would think three months of food, you know, if it's kept in things like canned beans and canned tuna fish and, you know, several, you know, maybe even dozens of massive jugs of water, you know, you're probably not looking at an investment more than somewhere between probably one and $5,000 that can still be used and, and rotated. So I'm going to get under that tent, but I don't do it right now. And so that actually puts me with a few of these, uh, these check marks unmarked. And that's kind of embarrassing. Uh, the next is, do you homeschool? And if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you know that the answer is yes. I, I think it's the the biggest libertarian imperative of them all. Uh, getting children out of the 13-year indoctrination system. I don't think there's any other way people are going to understand freedom if they are not, when they are at a very young age, allowed to be free. So that one's easy. Uh, did you start a blog, podcast, write a book, or do other things to promote the ideas intellectually? Uh, this is another big feather in the cap for a lot of libertarians to get their word out uh, through some kind of media. And I have done all of the three that I've listed. Uh, the only thing I do have a, a blog, a semi, a not very well populated blog. Uh, I think this is my 24th podcast episode. I've written one book. And. The only thing I haven't done is go to YouTube, uh, mostly for lack of ideas, and didn't really see the value in doing a voice podcast that has my face on it, too, because I like, I guess, presuming that other people consume media like I do, I like to do a secondary activity while listening and don't need to necessarily just see someone's facial expressions. Uh, this one is not applicable to everyone, but did you start a company or were you an entrepreneur? So since the libertarians are so horny for the free market and commerce and for entrepreneurship, uh, it makes sense that you not only didn't work for some some evil institution or some large corporation who's sucking at the state's teat, that you actually went out there and actively participated in laissez-faire and the act of value creation. And I can say that I did do that. I have my company, Sam lab you can look it up sam like the boy's name hyphen lab like the place where scientists work.com and you can send some work our way okay next have you ever kissed a girl okay so in the libertarian movement the there's very few women that are naturally come in and this is a, both a stereotype and a truism so presumably, if you go to these uh, libertarian events, it's mostly just all men. So a lot of people have theories that women uh, are naturally raised to be more dependent or uh, look more for external help. I don't know if that's true, but the ideas typically don't appeal to women very much as much as they do men. Uh, they don't appeal. My wife is under the tent with all of us, but... If you gave her a choice of reading a economic text and watching a 18th century period romance, she's going to pick the latter. And it's not because she's not, she disagrees with the ideas or doesn't like them. It's just not as interesting. 
And that's sort of a nice point to make is that a lot of this is very much hobby level activity. So while people can get very frustrated or angry that the world is not being saved and that corruption exists and that the that this this scope of violence is is making everybody less wealthy and, and, and less productive and less happy. Uh, most of this study is is just a hobby. It's a something we do for an enjoyment. We we love the complexity. We love the philosophical discussions. We love uh, un, unwinding the problems and, and putting things back together. And also, perhaps this is less hobby like. Also, a lot of people dislike the ethics and the morality of the whole thing. But as far as all the the technical nuts nuts and bolts, it's it probably a lot of libertarianism libertarianism has the same appeal uh, to girls as does say physics or motorcycle repair uh, or uh, football statistics. This is not their thing. Okay, next, uh, as a libertarian, do you like big butts? So anyway, it's common in libertarianism to say I like big butts and I cannot lie and some other fellows may deny uh, onward, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to be this whole culture of of like hot tubs and kind of super curvy women who have their their large butts throbbing to this sort of backbeat with people using non-melodic language uh, over to describe the big butt and how much they like it. And so I'm not really under that tent. Um, oh, wait a minute. Okay, this is actually uh, part of rap culture. This is not part of libertarianism. I'm sorry. So anyway, we can cross that one off the list. Um, next, uh, do you wear a tinfoil hat? And the answer to that one is no. But that's actually a larger category of do you enjoy and spread conspiracy theories, whether it's anything from chemtrails to whether 9-11 was an inside job or, you know, whether there's the secret evil cartel at the Bilderberg Group uh, planning for, you know, a unified New World Order and, you know, onward, etc. Uh, I'm not a big conspiracy theory. I sort of don't like the, the term at all because once a conspiracy uh, is found to be true, then it's not all of a sudden lumped in with all the things that are that seem sort of ridiculous and untrue. Um, I also don't like it because people do conspire. So the, the definitionally, the word's kind of wrong because uh, even people who, without any evil intention, who are sitting there planning a business or uh, planning on doing something without telling someone else are con- technically conspiring. So... Uh, but no, I'm not. I'm not a big conspiracy enthusiast. Uh, so that leads here is was 9/11 an inside job, and that has been a, a popular libertarian and sort of uh, as well as uh, I guess uh, like sort of that Tea Party-ish alt-right type of idea, which uh, I'm not not necessarily trying to tie those two groups together, being libertarians and the, those other uh, weirdos. And of course, no, 9-11 was not an inside job. It was actually executed by space aliens. One of the less fortunate aspects of libertarianism is sort of an obsession with the romanticism of oppression. And if you've ever spent any long periods of time on 
libertarian discussion boards. And I found this more when I used to back uh, several years ago, especially during the sort of Ron Paul years, is that I think maybe maybe along, maybe equal, maybe a little bit more than the Occupy people is an obsession with being oppressed. And that there is a certain amount of, I wouldn't say like pleasure taken in with the grief of knowing that there's this, this oppressive, domineering, you know, overlord upon us dictating what we can do, you know, uh, ruining our opportunities for, for wealth and, and better products, uh, ruining our ability to, to be free in our lives, uh, ruining our ability to, you know, to not be free, to have to conform to other people's rules and other people's sort of dictates to us. And at the same time, sort of pushing our hand into doing immoral acts, such as having people killed or in prison uh, on our behalf. And then, of course, the, just the, the general oppression of having to work a quarter to three, you know, a third of a year uh, without that money being retained by the person who worked for it. And I can see that. And what I've seen other people, at least not people that I, I really know, um, some people that I know, um, but, you know, other people just sort of reveling and just sort of being awash in this sort of sense of oppression and hopelessness. And that's where they sort of uh, both look for libertarian heroes and then feel or at least express a desperation for how things are and also sort of express a a sort of, I don't want to call it love, but like a, a deep-seated, you know, desire to be powerless. And that kind of stuff, um, I don't know if how, how much a victim I was to it, probably to some, to some, to, you know, some kind of large degree at some points, but really I've, I've come through and don't like to necessarily focus on how much I'm, you know, personally being oppressed or how societies is being oppressed by, uh, this, you know, this, this ominous shadow of a government that, that lords over us. And so that doesn't actually change the reality of anything, but it's just can be horribly unproductive. Now it's still as a hobby, it's still fun to, for me to talk about things like, you know, war and poverty and, uh, lack of freedom and stuff as I've been doing, you know, for the last hour and 10 minutes, but Overall, it's not a driving force, you know, personally a driving force in my life, and I don't think it really should be for others. Part of this, I think, and this isn't just for libertarians, but this is just about for everybody who lives in our country. Um, we see an incredible amount of tension in the news. So if you, if you, and we have four 24-hour news channels who, just by the fact that we're not showing news for half hour a day, on ABC anymore means that they have to fill this 24-hour cycle four channels wide uh, with perpetual grief, fear, frustration, and anger. So uh, there's just this constant pressure of hearing about what's happening, like in the war, for example. And, and the war isn't something that's happening here, but it's 6,000 miles away, done by people we don't know. But there's this, you know, constant pounding, you know, verbal audio uh you know, immediate existential threat that's put upon us, you know, that these, these terrorists are, uh, just about ready to, you know, come across the sea 
you know, hide in our bushes and, and murder us while we sleep. The, and that extends to a lot of other things, you know, they will we'll, we'll get into the, you know, this environment, this persistent environmental threat that uh, this, you know, this, this few degrees that's going to happen over the next hundred years uh, is going to be something that, that just absolutely kills everybody. You know, it, it's going to ruin the food and, and they can go into anything from, from dying bees uh, to unknown genetically modified organisms or, or whatever that's going to, to poison us. The new cycle goes on uh, and, and shows us the, the horrible amount of gun violence and, and person-to-person non-governmental violence that happens. And that is persistent, too. It almost becomes, you know, they get excited about, uh, maybe excited is the wrong word, but you can sort of see a certain fever uh, when the news gets hold of a, you know, a mass shooting or even just a gun statistic rate that happens in Chicago or something. And this is just information that's just sort of pounded upon us that 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 your neighbor, um, your neighbor is the one who is the most violent. And if it's not your immediate neighbor, it's a bunch of neighbors that you'll eventually have. Uh, the same thing with the weather. We just went through the hurricane hysteria and you can tell the whole weather news you know, infrastructure, industry, whatever, just goes, you know, bononkers, bananas horny for when a hurricane's going to come in and just absolutely tear us apart. Uh, we hear about constant bigotry and racism, even though we don't really, you know, at least, at least, you know, I know I'm, I'm sitting here in my, my uh, gilded office here, but, you know, no one I know actually ever sees this in real life, uh, you know, along with, you know, they don't see the environment and they don't see the war and they don't see the, you know, the, um, much of the storm and, uh, or, or the ongoing, the, you know, thing of poverty. So poverty and racism and xenophobia. Uh, and then finally this, this, the grand specter of politics and which right now in our election cycle, it's, it's monster versus monster. Um, and we're just constantly barraged by, you know, which person is going to win this magic contest that will make everybody's lives more miserable. And, uh, you know, that's the sort of this constant pressure. And I know my, my in-laws, for example, uh, spend an enormous amount of time watching television news and they're genuinely afraid of all of these things. You know, they're, they're, uh, ter- you know, they, they look at me with crossed eyes when I tell them that I'm not particularly afraid of terrorists, uh, or of the environment, uh, nor do I see much racism. Uh, I, you know, I, I see ways out of po- poverty. I, I see the shooting sprees as being an exception and not a trend line and, and, and not being too worried about what, what two political monsters might eventually rule over us and ruin everything. So in some ways like this, this vision of this 24 hour news vision seems to completely compete with what at least I experience in real life. And because my real life is full of just about the opposite of these things. It's not war. It's it's perpetual peace. It's it's not an, a noticeable environmental threat. It's beautiful, sunny weather. Um, you know, there's no even even where I live in South Carolina, uh, where supposedly we're the most racist place on the entire planet uh, with our Confederate flags. Uh, you know, I, I see I see people of you know, I see black and whites, uh, dining together, um, and, and no expression of racism from day to day. 
And of course, we don't see shootings. And the, the, the politics, for the most part, you know, until they do something like cock up health insurance or whatever, uh, they're completely invisible in life, you know, once you turn off the TV and don't bring it up with your neighbors. So the, the tension and the oppression that is sort of resident on the news is either, I don't know, it's either, it feels either propagandistic or it feels like people uh, love like misery entertainment. And I think that sort of goes back to that romanticism of oppression is that there's something that maybe people crave about misery and oppression. And I guess you can see that in even the novels people read in the movies they choose to watch. Um, you know, whether you're into Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead, uh, which are two of the most popular series out right now in here in October of 2016, that there is some voracious appetite for oppression and misery, and we're being served it, it seems like. And that drives some of the libertarian outrage that people probably feel. And, but of course that drives the outrage that, you know, everyone, regardless of political stripe is often expressing. And in many ways, as, uh, as much as I enjoy the, you know, the, the scary television show, I find the rest of it to be probably counterproductive, especially when it's easy to enjoy a, sh you know, a show like Game of Thrones and see all the treachery and misery and violence and pain, but know that you're just experiencing something that's fiction. The, the other one, that 24 hour news cycle showing you a similar level of constant terror and discomfort is meant to be real and it's supposed to make you feel threatened. So, so anyway, we got that going for us. So in counterpoint to that romanticism of oppression, I want to talk about how I'm personally free. Because when I wake up in the morning, I don't have an alarm clock. I don't have anyone telling me when I have to get up. This is partly because the government really isn't here at my house. If I were to take a walk around my lovely home, you would see that everything that's in here, uh, besides perhaps the regulation that might have stopped it from being better, all came from the free market. Every single product from the Tyvek in my walls to the pictures hanging on my wall to the food in my fridge. And most of it is beautiful stuff. The The house I live in is large. It's a nice five-bedroom number, four bathrooms. It's got a beautiful marsh view. Uh, we have tons of space. My kids, you know, they have the, they have their own spaces. Um, we, we have a wealth of everything that we have. So it feels, I don't feel oppressed or, or like the government's lording over me. There's, there's nothing really here then. What do I do? You know, I, I do a little bit of work. You know, I answer a couple of emails and then I have, have a nice breakfast, which I totally pick on my own. And so I can get, you know, I get to engage in a little bit of that free market for a few minutes and then uh, get get to cook for myself, maybe eat, eat breakfast with my kids who, who don't go to school. That, that part of the government hasn't affected them. Now they're free of that. And uh, then I walk down here. It's in South Carolina. It's like... It's like beautiful and sunny just about every day, except for a couple of months. And uh, we have this this beautiful, uh, huge, you know, six lane 
pool and I get to take a walk with my, my eight-year-old boy and we talk about everything from how nature works to mostly how Pokemon works. And I, I do a nice exercise and a swim and he does too. And then we visit the playground for a bit and there's no restrictions on us. We're like completely free. So I don't know why at this point, you know, why libertarianism would really, really count for anything. I mean, what, what, what's sort of really the complaint about here? Uh, then I might go home and have lunch with my, my wife and children. And then I might decide whether I want to, you know, bathe in a bathroom, you know, that has no less than six, you know, shower jets or even take a nap and then perhaps, or, you know, read a book, listen to a podcast or something, whatever I want, you know, I'm, nothing is censored. I don't have any limitations about what, what I can consume there. Uh, most of it's, for, you know, is practically free to almost free. Even if you buy books now, uh, they cost just about nothing. You know, then maybe do a bit of work. And then, uh, like this afternoon, we decided to go get pumpkins from the pumpkin patch. And we carved pumpkins for Halloween. It's going to be Halloween in a few days. And, uh, you know, then as the, the afternoon turns to evening, uh, we usually spend, you know, time together you know, cooking a home-cooked meal, or maybe we go to a restaurant, or maybe we have uh, some great friends over who aren't chosen for us, you know, um, you know, and, and even though they're, they're uh, these nice, you know, libertarian people, we don't, we don't even talk about that. We talk about the football game we're going to watch on Sunday, which uh, is, you know, completely cost-free for the most part, and, you know, wonderfully fun, and, uh, then perhaps we have some, you know, nice glasses of wine and a nice cigar. And then eventually perhaps we watch some after the guests go home. You know, the wife and I will watch a, you know, maybe a movie or, or some other or some of the marvel of television that's coming out now from, from Amazon and Netflix and HBO. You know, this sort of golden age of, of TV that now that, uh, that the Hollywood code and the, the monopoly on the, the three major networks is done with. They can just produce this beautiful television and everything, even the stuff that my kids consume, you know, if we even look at some miracle of, uh, you know, sitting, sitting on a couch that, that you got from, you, you really got from a store and you're watching a DVD of, of Toy Story 3, which is just a marvel of free market technology. And the fact that you got it for whether you have the DVD or you're streaming it for two ninety nine, you know, for nothing. Uh, you're getting to see the labor of something like, you know, thousands of people and $200 million. Um, and you're streaming it and then you get hungry and you go on your iPad and you can order, you can have somebody right there, uh, deliver hot pizza to your door. And all of this is just a miracle of, you know, market technology. And so it's really, uh, and then even, even going back to, you know, to my work day, I get to, you know, freely collaborate with my team of, uh, you know, bright young people um, who are also, you know, well-engaged and, and have a lot of autonomy in their lives as far as uh, working from home and making a good paycheck. And at home is just a wonderful case for freedom. And it's hard to, once you can turn off that 24-hour news cycle, you realize that, you know, why, why am I investing time in political libertarianism, why do I have these ideas? You know, because I'm already so free. 
No, wait a minute. How can I say that I'm that free? Just listen to how I'm not free. Now, first of all, up until about something like April 17th or something, all of the work that I did to earn my money is taken away from me, essentially by force. And for me, that's not like some insignificant amount of money. My federal tax bill is usually between fifty and $70,000, which is a lot of cabbage. That doesn't include the sales tax I pay, the 6.8% state income tax, the luxury taxes, the property taxes, onward and onward. How much of that does that totally equal? That might be up to 40%, maybe it's 50%, but it's a lot of money that goes into the institution of government. And that time is real time, and that's time you don't get back. So to think of a quarter of your working year, and, you know, those work weeks, you know, the 37 and a half hours, you know, every single week, that is all essentially squandered. Now, you do get some some services back at the local level, but mostly the only outcome from that big federal outlay you're going to see is in those that one and a half trillion dollars spent killing people overseas, people you don't even know, the, the, the million people, the one or two million people that are in prison that you've never met. Uh, perhaps if they still have it more old, you might get some pittance, some partial payment back in terms of social security. But for the most part, that money is gone and that time is gone and you're never going to get it back. And I'm never going to get it back. Uh, there's restrictions on stuff that I can't buy. So I would desperately love to buy some marijuana. And even though, um, my doctor thought it would be healthier for me than my other vice, uh, of right now it's going to be a little bit of vodka and grapefruit a little tinkle there a little tinkle i could potentially go to jail if i chose to buy some and that applies to i haven't even gotten into what's what it's considered legal drugs but they still have a gatekeeper on them and that's all part of this medical cartel that i've talked about for a long time the fact that if i want to see someone for healthcare, i have to see someone who is certified by the ama um, we've seen the entire pharmaceutical industry completely cocked up into a cartel where one pharmaceutical I get, uh, had, had I not been paying, my, my health care premium is $500 uh, per three-ounce bottle. Um, you know, luckily, you know, at least even not a decade ago, I'm not gay uh, or black or a woman. Um we don't have to moan about this so much, but we even, you know, sort of celebrate the government when they, they roll back, you know, some kind of awful policy against, uh, you know, a certain group of people. You know, my access to health care, as I was just saying, is completely fucked up. Uh, I was talking about how the premium raise is up. There's no way in the world that I should be paying, you know, $1,300 a month just to have the ability to see a doctor. As it turns out, we have this massive copay. My wife was in the hospital this year. So our total outlay for what essentially equaled catastrophic coverage, a few doctor's appointment, and a day and a half in the hospital has been about $24,000 in 2016. Cross my fingers, the year isn't over yet. I'm luckily getting a colonoscopy pretty soon, and that will only run me another four grand. So this really sort of irritates the hell out of me. And as I've said many, many times before, the government has probably prevented the innovation to keep us all alive longer uh, on hold. Another thing that way I'm not free is that my savings and bank account is totally fucked up. 
the only place that I was able to save money in a savings account is now returning no interest, essentially. Uh, the official rate is 0.01%. And that's not 1% being 1 100th. That is not 1,000th, is it? No, it's 1 10,000th of a percent of interest paid back. So it's essentially zero. And you could say, well, you could go to the stock market. But that I'm absolutely terrified of. I have no idea what's going to happen with this quantitative easing coming from our government. So I'm in really between a rock and a hard place of not knowing whether the money will be quickly wiped out in the stock market when it's going to crash next because of the fiscal policy or whether I can watch it slowly rot away in a savings account and have inflation uh you know, slowly just disintegrate it. Um, I can only go so far from disassociating uh, from things like the war and the prison state. So even though I don't experience those things personally, I do feel, I don't know, it's not guilt, but it's it's a bad feeling that these things are happening, that these injustices um, happen. Uh, my family happened to escape school, uh, but I feel bad. I would be less free. I was less free when I felt like I had to send my children to school. That might have been the biggest imposition and also the biggest freedom or self-freedom that we gave ourselves. But the thing that really limits us there is is there should be this beautiful market for education and children and for the flourishing of children, and it's just not here because there's only so few of us that have opted out of the school system, just about 3% that there's almost no viable way that all you know all the beautiful things they could have come up with to just enrapture and engage children don't exist instead we just have the school system the government school system where you sit and uh, do what you're told and then we don't even know so if you listen to the podcast the F word in America part 1 we don't even know what we've been missing we don't know how much better our computers could be. Actually, that's the, that's the worst example I could have come up with. Um, we don't know how much better our food could be. We don't know how much better our medicine could be. We we don't know how much better our transportation could be. I mean, we've, you know, how how long has has cheaper fuel or self driving cars been put uh, on the you know on the back burner because of government regulation. We don't even know what, what, you know, what prices things would be in a natural state. So we don't even see some of the freedoms and the opportunities and some of the wonderful things that we could have had uh, because of the cartelization and the, 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 the fascistic nature of our government and our businesses. So a lot of the freedoms that I don't miss are because I don't I don't have them because we don't know what they are and we don't know what could have been. So in some of those ways, in the, some of those small ways, you know, I don't necessarily feel free and think that I still have a libertarian gripe to make. <laughs> On my blog at 500years.org, all spelled out, in May of 2015, I wrote a blog called When Schools Fail to Indoctrinate. And the idea was about Six Sigma school defects and the need for de-schooling. And so a couple decades ago, in management theory or management practice, there was a popular concept called Six Sigma, which was a 
sort of a, a philosophy, if you will, about manufacturing and quality or total quality management, where there was a certain acceptable amount of defects you would accept within your manufacturing process with the products that it came out. And so usually, if I remember correctly, it was something like 99.6 would be perfect products and the other rest would be allowable defects. And the point was, is that it was too, it'd be too expensive to optimize your manufacturing and your supplies to make everything a hundred percent perfect because the incremental cost to get to perfection versus the 0.6% of stuff that you would have to throw away or retool, the, uh, it was cheaper to throw stuff, the stuff away than it was to perfect the manufacturing process to 100%. And that ratio changed based on what you were manufacturing. If you were manufacturing matchsticks, you might have a much larger defect rate if you have uh, aircraft sub-assemblies where drilling the wrong hole will cost you $100,000, then you might you might invest into 100% uh, quality rate. And that got me thinking about public school, which sometimes in our lingo is called factory school by its critics. And you can look at this as having the same objectives of making the schooled person, the, the citizen consumer that comes out of this 13-year factory process of you know, processing children and having most of them come out with the desired income, you know, excuse me, the desired outcome of being indoctrinated, obedient, conformist people. But what if there is a defect rate in the schooling process and some percentage, say like 1% or 3% of these kids, the, the attempt to put in the indoctrination fails? Uh, it's in Six Sigma speak, you know, this is the failure rate and is imagine is it as however effective or efficient you could, you could imagine government being, they're going to have some failure rate in this schooling process. And I got to be thinking that maybe this is partly what creates libertarians and probably more so entrepreneurs is that the schooling process did not stick. And so from there, I began thinking of uh, if that's the case, you know, can we use that model to make a case that we should actually de-school people and try to make them defective outcomes of the schooling system? And so that was sort of where I ended with the idea. The Because we've seen people who, um, who were never schooled uh, don't necessarily already come with that, what we call a defect, that sort of liberty or independence defect baked in. And then people who catch it very early uh, can have a much more successful rate of sort of creating that defect, which actually, you know, I'm using negative language, but it's really an advantage. Uh, and then people who, you know, didn't realize, uh, but weren't defective, you know, then have a much longer path to undoing what school did. I believe I've said many times on this podcast, you know, that the most important way of giving people bad ideas is to make children suffer through them and believe them to be the truth for long periods of time over the course of years, you know, through repetition and authority. And, you know, it bears repeating that if you want to make a Muslim who is willing to strap a bomb on his back, or you want to make a Westboro Baptist church person hold up a 
God hates fag signs. You really need to get them when they're kids. And that goes for just about everything. And as we know, this was pretty much invented through parenting itself, uh, you know, used by the Spartans, and has been the complete basis of public education. And if indoctrination is too strong a word, you can think of it as any, any procedure by which you push ideas into a child's head repeatedly over years and years. And probably the, the biggest culprits here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the media, I'm going to let the media off the hook here, is school, which has, you know, the 15,000 hours of time it does. The church, which gets a little bit of less time, but has a much more uh, authoritarian and scary message. And then the parents. And interestingly, all three of these groups are all very self-interested in the indoctrination or the stuffing of ideas that they do. So the school run by the government and which also wants to propagate itself, you know, is the thing that teaches the the importance of the schooling and the importance of government. It's not like there's a third entity that comes in and said, well, here's here's the facts. Here's a bunch of information about the government and uh, being a citizen and voting and being a good, you know, consumer citizen. And here's the other information. It's it's only the the party that's you know dearly self-interested in, in its outcome is the one that's doing the indoctrinating. That goes for the church too. The church isn't a neutral body that comes in and says, here's here's this one raft of spiritual beliefs. Here's this other raft of spiritual beliefs that these other people believe. Uh, here's a path that doesn't have any uh, supernatural beliefs whatsoever. Here's the facts. Uh, you pick which one. No, they have the one that they believe in and the one that they want to self-propagate. And that's the one that gets indoctrinated in to the children. And then I'm sure people don't like to hear this, but the parent relationship works the same way. The parent uh, needs to have authority, but does have authority in training their children on how to behave. But they, too, have a dear self-interest in making sure the child is obedient, that historically he would come in and help and work, and that historically when he was older, that he would still, even though he, he wasn't subject to the physical domination or this physical power differential would uh, still be able to be loyal uh, either through guilt or through the the training when they were a child to their parents, whether that was to take care of the parents, to watch the farm, um, to not abandon them if he didn't like them. And so the parent always has that that similar, that self-interest when they raise the child. They There's no neutral parent that comes in and says, well, these people who are biologically related to you are actually douchebags, and uh, here, here's the option for, for getting away, or, or even here's the option. I know you can't get away, but when you're finally free, that you don't have to necessarily still believe that you love these people when you don't. And uh, all of these things are very powerful. Of course, we've, we've talked at great length about everyone's sort of internal compulsion to go to school, which is almost impossible to reverse. Uh, impossible to reverse amongst your parents and neighbors. Um, church has a similar grab on people um, so much that they it's almost a very painful way to even think of an alternate, even even if you're only thinking about sort of a, uh, you know, a different type of spirituality, uh, for, you know, from a different religion, um, it, people are very resistant. And, of course, with the, the parent relationships, um, People go their whole lives, you know, even to to their own grave or to their parents' grave, 
uh, believing that they must unconditionally love their parents, even when they don't value their relationship, even when the relationship uh, is unbalanced or is, uh, um, you know, aggressively needy or aggressively abusive. And this was even, I recently went on a little retreat with three adult friends of mine all my age, and they we spent a great amount of time uh, talking about our the hooks that our parents had in us and whether whether you know how I felt with both my parents being dead and uh, one my another friend who was hoping that his mother dies soon so that he and his dad could be free of the hooks that they she has in in them you know even though it's been decades since he's lived under the same roof and my other friend who hasn't seen his father in 15 or 20 years um, still actually feeling both very bitter and still conflicted about whether he should reach out and talk to this awful man that he already does not see and so that is sort of like visiting you know coming to terms with indoctrination and you know I think I think libertarianism fits into this, especially with this school experience and maybe partly with your parent experience, is that, you know, the state replicates the authority of the the school and the parent and likes to operate in the same way of, of being an authority that controls what you're supposed to do, uh, that you're supposed to be obedient to, and, you know, supposed to conform with, with, with the others and to to resist the idea of, you know, of war, of total state, of that, you know, that, that taxes are, are somehow voluntary, that, that the government is, as we are citizens, are, is somehow part of us, is, is very much a, a remnant from, from the indoctrination we got in school. And so if some of those ideas sort of conflict in your mind, where you're like, well, I think taxes are an agreement, even though if I don't pay them, uh, I will still be made to pay them, you know, even though I don't like some, you know, most of the stuff that the money goes for, I'm not really a big pro or guy, but, um, you know, this, the government is of, of us and we agree to it, even though you can plainly see that, you know, you don't agree, or if you, you very much, you know, support democracy and the, the democratic process and say, well, this is how we participate and one vote for one person and, and, uh, this is how we change things, and yet you're you're simultaneously terrified that one of the candidates is going to be actually elected, that the the system that you're you're supporting is going to create such a terrible outcome. Yet there's no there's no dissonance, there's no contradiction there, that that democracy is the way to go. But then there's this Trump monster that's you know likely to get the power that that you're hoping to pretend to delegate to them. And so I think, I mean, that, that you sort of have to have like, you know, little meetings with your indoctrination or little meetings with your childhood self and the ideas that were stuffed in their head. And I think the, the church is the same way. Um, you know, you can meet people who feel conflicted with, you know, who actually spend too much time with scripture and, and see the inconsistencies and the impossibilities, whatever, yet still want to maybe just, you know, maybe recreate you know, a new version of that. Um, but instead of based on the scripture, it's based on, on something else. So maybe there's still a, you know, 
is still a, a deity, but we don't, you know, but we don't know what it is, and there's still a soul. So it's just a recreation of the indoctrination, but with a different basis because you you're sort of starting to see the the disconnect. And that same same thing with the government, you know, you like you, you can see that the, the the democratic process is absolutely awful, but you still want to support it, you know. Um, and then and then of course we were just talking about parent relationships where you can see that you want your mom dead just to be free of her, but you still, for some reason, can't see that those feelings also should be strong enough that you wouldn't want her to uh, have her authority or her ability to give you guilt uh, work into your, you know, into your mind. I mean, if, if you want somebody to be dead, then that should be powerful enough to break free from the influence, I would think. But the the frustration in, in all of those, uh, again, the the government slash school, the church and the religion, and then the the parent, is I think people are fighting fighting the programming that they were given as kids. And even though they have this their their logic and their reason and you know that that the truth, the facts. Uh, you know, create things that contradict each other. The the programming is sort of the poison, or the the funhouse mirror that doesn't allow them to accept the contradictions in their current thought. Anyways, going back to libertarianism, that might be a huge reason. And I think I actually went beyond scope there of this podcast because this is supposed to be funny libertarian stuff. But the the libertarian idea is very much counter to so much indoctrination, both, you know, especially from the school and what it teaches. To some degree, how with the church, depending on how you view its authority, and then, of course, with the authority of parents. So that's something to think about. Have a little meeting, like a little how do you do with your indoctrination now and again, and try to see if what you were taught as a kid is partly responsible for you not to put contradicting facts, you know, to not reject contradicting facts or or, um, how it may not be stopping you from putting complementary facts together. Now let's switch to good and bad ways of cultivating libertarianism. And by this, I mean spreading the ideas to other people in a way that they will find them not only acceptable and reasonable, but also attractive, invigorating, and liberating. So the things that we've tried, that most of us have tried in the past that have been horrible failures include arguments, because again, people are usually fighting against uh, preconceived notions. Some, as we were just saying, were driven in as early as birth. So it's very hard to convince people with arguments unless they're already super disciplined in changing their mind. And so the same way is pushing the education of liberal themes. And by liberal, I mean classically liberal or libertarian. So educating people is, of course, very good. And you're going to find some amount of people who have, have an open mind or, or haven't, uh, you know, haven't been decided or who all of a sudden discover that they've found their worldview. And I think that happened to me to some degree. Um, so I think that's that's a good way, but I don't think it's the the total win path. Uh, in some ways, it's the only thing that we can really do publicly is to spread education and write the best blogs and have the best podcast. 
but it's going to be a trickle-in effect. It's not going to help people en masse. Uh, same with uh, debating. It goes along with arguments. I guess I mean the same thing by that. Uh, politics might be the absolute worst way because libertarianism is sort of the opposite of politics. It's the it's non-politics. It's non, especially it's non you know people or non-democracy. It's not a system of people who make decisions, which was again as we talked about earlier, the biggest mistake with you know the biggest intellectual mistake with the Ron Paul campaign that we would want a person. Uh, in charge of giving us our freedom or, or still lording over us, still being in control of the power stick uh, and just being a good person. So that's a terrible idea. Plus, we can't control it. It's too big. There's 4 million people who work for the government. The candidates that were presented with always seem kind of pre-selected. You know, the the election process itself, whether you go to voter, you know, people's choice theory or um, the, the actual mechanics of the electoral college, you know, is just completely useless. And then, as we talked about before, libertarian politicians probably shouldn't exist because it just doesn't make sense. Now, the good ways, and these aren't all my original ideas, but uh, some of these I have to give to my friend Isaac Morehouse. Um, one of them that is really great at cultivating libertarianism is experiencing freedom firsthand. So the more that you can you know, give people the experience of freedom, the less likely they're going to give it up. Uh, it's going to be, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, when they've invented anything from, you know, the automobile to live streaming video is that once you have it, if you've ever have, you know, your Roku, and then you go to some crappy hotel, which has that 1979 cable system, you immediately see, you know, the drop in experience. So to the point of massive frustration and, once you get used to a certain mode of living, it's so hard to go back. And, and you don't even have to understand it intellectually or understand the logic. You just know what you like better. So the more we can have people experience freedom, the better. Uh, another one is to live the life of a free person and live as an example. So if you can be this person who you know, sets their own schedule, seems to be in charge of their, their commerce, has, you know, great relationships with their friends and their families and their children, and doesn't let the, the political and that, that 24-hour news cycle, you know, bear down upon them and is productive and likes to collaborate and is charitable and giving and, you know, has joy and, you know, exemplifies, you know, the virtues and the the characteristics of a free person, people are going to see that and they're going to want to be that. And that's going to promote freedom more than any debate could ever do. Uh, as I said before, showing a good relationship with commerce and helping people have a good relationship with, relationship with commerce, I think can really help at least set the stage for cultivating the ideas. And again, having, you know, living that experience so that people don't feel like they need to, uh, you know, defer to an authority to do things, but instead they see themselves like generating value and collaborating and giving more than they actually receive, which is how commerce works. And then lastly, of course, is the children, you know, homeschooling being top of my list, you know, unschooling is letting them have, you know, apps, you know, as much freedom as they can when they're young, instead of putting them in a, in a system of authority and compulsion and obedience. And that goes doubly for parenting, which means you have to be a very not a careful parenter but not fall into the traps um especially you know not hitting kids um but being careful with how you use arguments of authority so it's never starting because you know you have to or because 
you, you, you live under my roof, uh, or because I said so. It, you know, it's always as best you can. You can't always do it because sometimes a two-year-old is going to go batshit when they don't get the pink popsicle. But is every opportunity that you can is to express and demonstrate freedom and show, you know, give people their own authority, their own their own power and their own ability to collaborate and make value. And so those are the ways I think we need to, we, maybe I should just apply that to, I uh, should cultivate libertarianism. So I think the question I posed in the beginning and the title of this podcast is, is libertarianism a political failure? And I think the answer is a resounding yes on many dimensions. Now, obvious, obviously, uh, nobody likes libertarianism. It's a hyper minority. Uh, most of the people who even know about it think it's a dreadful idea. If you look at the, the polls or the election results, it does awful. Uh, the best it's ever done, I think, is 1% of the popular vote. Uh, even if the rhetoric is used within government, it's always a political failure. Even if there's somebody has some, a little bit of the language, you know, like it's Ronald Reagan or it's, um, you know, someone in Congress or it's Ron Paul, or it's, it's, uh, some Republican esque type person who even mentions like cutting spending or reducing the scope, you know, that just never happens. It just, you know, the government just grows and grows and grows as much as it can, both in scope and its expense. And so that part always fails, it seems. It just about always fails. And, and the government's never going to step up and say, here's a problem, and we don't have a solution, and we don't think we should have a solution. That's just a very rare thing. So I think both in a popular way, in an electoral way, and in a political or governmental way, libertarianism is a complete political failure. At the same time, it can't succeed, so it has to be a failure. You can't ask for the ultimate power of monopolistic violence and then promise to not use it. Why would you ask for it if you didn't want to use it? And you can see that the the people, as they are now either trained or desired to be, uh, sees the wonderful power of being able to make people do things and see it as a great way to make thing, different things happen, even if they, if they are at the expense of other people, even if they're at the expense of other people's desires. So in that way, if the libertarians really can't justify acquiring the ultimate power in, in, in a way, you know, because it contradicts everything that they're trying to say, then it has to fail automatically. And then lastly, it's a desire for political failure. It's the philosophy is precedented on wanting the government to be a failure to bring any kind of human flourishing to the world. And in that way, it's, I think it has been a good reflection of how politics has failed. Politics, not just being the, the process, but the, the actual government and the, the authority itself. So it's, it's a desire for that to fail. And for something new and better to show up for the the desire for not to have violence and and authority and limitations but instead 
you know, freedom and passion and collaboration and beauty emerge. So in that way, political failure isn't a tragedy. It's instead a beautiful vision. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. Yeah, when a girl walks in with an itty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sprung. Wanna pull up tough, cause you notice that butt was stuffed. Deep in the jeans she's wearing. I'm hooked and I can't stop staring. Oh, baby, I wanna get whipped up and take your picture. My whole boy's trying to warn me, but that butt you got makes me so horny. Ooh, rump up smooth skin. You say you wanna get my bins?